This Sunday, I think, is going to be the last in our series on overlooked books of the Bible. Uh, And today, we're going to look at the book of James. Now, I know it's probably a stretch to call James an overlooked book of the Bible. Uh, One of our women's groups, I know, just finished a study out of the book of James. Uh, But historically, I think you could argue that it has been one of the more misunderstood. Uh, Certainly, famously, Martin Luther was not a fan, uh, and he was not alone. Part of the problem, in my opinion, has come from expecting the book of James to be something that it just isn't. James did not set out to write an academic treatise on theology. Uh, Not that there isn't some important theology in the letter. There is. But rather, James was one of the pillars of the early church. Uh, He was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. You might remember, maybe, from our series out of Luke and Acts, that when Paul comes to Jerusalem to argue for Gentile inclusion in the family of God, it is James who ultimately issues the decision. What we have here, then, is not a textbook. It's not even a letter responding to a specific situation, as many of Paul's letters are. But rather, it's a collection of teachings written by a pastor, a shepherd, for his flock. I picture James, later in his ministry, writing this letter to sort of sum up his teaching for his people so that they might continue to flourish as followers of Jesus. Look at the introduction he gives us, chapter 1, starting in verse 2. He says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work, so that you might be mature and whole, not lacking in anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt. Well, what does that little introduction tell us? Well, first, it tells us that James knows that in real life, trials are inevitable. I have no doubt that when he wrote that, he had certain people in mind, people that he knew that in that very moment were facing serious tests to their faith. Second, James understands that trials can actually lead to blessing. They can lead to blessing for those with the wisdom and faith to navigate them well. If, and this is a big if, if we can persevere, if we can navigate them successfully, they can produce perseverance, which leads to maturity and wholeness. And third, James knows that the key to navigating them well is wisdom which God gives freely, he says, to all who ask. So here's what I think you'll see if you look at the book of James as a whole. You see a collection of short teachings, uh, depending on how you count them and divide them up, there's something like 12, that are designed to provide this kind of wisdom. And you may notice, I, I happen to think, they bear a striking resemblance to Jesus' teachings and to the book of Proverbs in that, Like Proverbs, like Jesus' teachings, they are short, concise, and they rely heavily on images and metaphors and analogies to make their point. I don't think that's an accident. James was the brother of Jesus, and like Jesus, he had been raised in a Jewish household. And I think what he has written, what he would tell us that he has written, is a wisdom book for the people of the Messiah. That is, what we have is a book that aims to offer wisdom, much like Job or Ecclesiastes or Proverbs, 
but to offer it specifically for those who are living on this side of the cross. James tells us what it looks like to live wisely in a world where Jesus has already been revealed as the Lord and where sin and death have been dealt a decisive blow. Now, before we dive in, we should probably take a quick minute here and define what we mean by wisdom. Uh, I have a whole spiel on this, but I think a good working definition for us this morning is this. Wisdom is skill in navigating the complexities of real life. Skill in navigating the complexities of real life. Uh, And if the idea of wisdom as skill in living strikes you as a little bit odd, you should know it actually comes from the Old Testament. Uh, The Hebrew word used for wisdom is chokmah, which is a word that is also used to denote skill. Uh, For example, if you read the book of Exodus, where the Israelites are building the tabernacle, you'll discover that they they gather from their midst uh, those who are excellent, those who have chokmah in building, painting, producing fine fabrics. Uh, In other words, they gather together craftsmen of great skill. The more I've thought about that, uh, the more I like that as an analogy and explanation of wisdom. And here's why. I think we all know that wisdom requires some knowledge, but we also know that it's more than knowledge, don't we? I would guess that all of you know somebody who is very intelligent and yet who is often foolish. I would also bet that you all know someone, maybe a number of people, who are less educated, but who are nevertheless people that you would say, that is a person of great wisdom. And if you ask yourself, you know, what what explains that disparity? The answer, I think, is something like skill. Uh, Think of it like this. I, I recently decided that I needed to run an additional natural gas line in my house. We've got several appliances that run on gas, uh, and, I, and I want to add one more. So we already have the service. It's divided up. I just I want to add one more branch off of that line. Now, there are two obstacles uh, that stand in the way of me personally doing this work, okay? One is something we might call a knowledge problem, which is, you know, simply, I have no idea how to actually do that, Right? Uh, Now, that's easy to solve in the internet age. You can hop online, you spend a couple hours, you can find any number of of how-to instructions, you know, illustrated with nice pictures and drawings. Uh, You can hop on YouTube, and in an hour, my guess is you could watch a dozen different people walk you through step-by-step exactly how to do it. And by the end, you know, let's say two hours, let's be generous, you would know everything you need to know in order to do it. You would have all the knowledge, I can see some of you are getting nervous as you listen to me talking about this. So let me put you at ease. I have no intention of actually doing this by myself, uh, you know, because of obstacle two, which is what we might call a skill problem, right? I can get the knowledge. I can watch videos. I can read how-tos, and I will gain that knowledge. But I think we all know that there's another ingredient there, right? And you would all say to me, especially those of you who have maybe done this, or, you know, insurance adjusters. And he would say, just because you have the knowledge doesn't mean you have the skill to do it well. Can't get the skill from watching a video or reading a how-to. Wisdom is the skill of implementing our knowledge, our judgments, and our instincts well. Wisdom is the skill of using those things so that we can navigate the complexities of real life successfully. 
And James tells us straight away in chapter 1 that this is the kind of wisdom that he is interested in. He wants to help real believers, people he knows and cares about, living in the real world, facing trials, to navigate life well so that they might get the full blessing of their faith, so that they might be mature and complete. Now, we obviously don't have time this morning to walk through all of James's teachings, so what I'd like to do is to look more closely at two of them. So let's look first at James chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. He writes this, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, oh, here, come over here, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, "Uh, maybe stand over there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, on the surface, this is a very straightforward, if challenging, exhortation. Simply, do not show favoritism. And the example James uses here is wealth. James knows that in the real world, there is a temptation to treat the wealthy differently, that is, better than the poor. And by the way, I picked this example because this is not one of those things that's, you know, a specific cultural challenge and it's totally alien to us. I think we all know uh, that favoritism poses the same temptation and problem today that it always has. And by the way, wealth is hardly the only cause for favoritism. We could add status, fame, power, education. We could add race or sex. Favoritism, for any of these reasons, James makes clear, is unacceptable within the family of God. Now, I want to point out, just pause for a second, that depending on your worldview, I think you could argue that showing favoritism could appear to be both rational and clever, And I think James knows this. He knows, as he writes this, that some people are looking at that situation he describes where a rich man and a poor man walk in, and they're starting to run calculations in their mind. Uh, We are treated to treat wealth, attempted to treat wealthy people better because we know that that behavior has the possibility of producing greater benefits for us. After all, we think if we impress them, if we treat them well, well, they might be moved to treat us well in response. Uh, When I was in high school, my family one evening was watching TV together, and somehow we we stumbled upon a a kind of a lifestyles of the rich and famous type of show. They were were focusing on yachts, and the whole idea was they would just take you on tours of these sumptuous yachts. They'd interview a couple of the staff and, and the owner of the yacht. I don't remember most of it, but I do remember the last one. Of course, they they saved the largest, most luxurious yacht for for last. They interview some of the staff. They finally interview the owner, and and, and the host is just sort of gushing. He goes, what an incredible boat. I mean, is there anything better than being the owner of such a magnificent yacht? And without missing a beat, the owner looks right at him and goes, yeah, there certainly is. Uh, There's being the friend of the person who owns a magnificent yacht. And and he says, listen, every time I take this yacht out, I spend $100,000 minimum on fuel. Every year, no matter how often or how little I use it, 
I spend hundreds of thousands of dollars paying salaries and paying for maintenance, paying for storage. My friends, they get a phone call and they show up Friday afternoon with a duffel bag and they enjoy the weekend and they think nothing about all the rest of that. Better to be my friend than to own the yacht. Now, that stuck with me because I didn't expect it. And I also think he might have a point. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we can acknowledge there is a selfish, sinful part of us that sees the rich and we immediately think about what they could do for us. There is a kind of cynical rationale for that kind of favoritism. But against this argument, James makes two very persuasive points. He reminds us that we need to remember who the king is and what his kingdom is like. Look at verses, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. James says, look, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin, and you are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. James says, look, I know it seems clever to some of you to treat wealthy people better. You think you're going to get a return on that investment. The problem, he says, is that when you do that, you are disobeying the king. You have left the king out of your calculations. And he references what he calls the royal law, the command to love our neighbors. This is the law of Jesus' kingdom, and especially in Jesus' explanation, it allows room for no favoritism. I mean, if you know the parable of the Good Samaritan, then you know that we don't get to choose our neighbor We don't get to choose who we help and who we don't help. In Jesus' kingdom, we are commanded, we are commanded by our king to be a neighbor to all who are in need, whomever they are. And so writing to believers, James reminds them not to leave the king out of their calculation. Under Jesus' rule, favoritism is wrong. It's sin. It runs contrary to the royal law of the king. And whatever might be gained from wealthy friends, James says, is surely outweighed by disobeying the king and opposing his commands. I mean, whatever the wealthy and powerful might do for you, Jesus has done more. Jesus has done more. So if we were really wise, James says, we would prioritize our obedience to the king above everything else. James makes a second point. Look at verses 5 and 6. He says, Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has God not chosen? Has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Listen, I think James would agree that in a certain world, you can make the argument for treating the wealthy and powerful better. You could argue it just makes sense. But you just can't make that argument, James says, in this world. And you especially cannot make that argument after the cross. He says, again, the problem with those equations is they fail to take into account the new reality of Jesus' kingdom. James says, listen, we have already seen that God has chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom of God. And listen, we also know, don't we, what does Jesus say about his kingdom? He says, in my kingdom, the first will be last, and the last will be first. 
When his disciples are, are squabbling over who is going to be the greatest in his coming kingdom, Jesus says to them, what? You've misunderstood. The greatest in my kingdom will be the servants of all. In other words, those who show favoritism are acting as though the cross and the resurrection never happened. As though Jesus and his kingdom will not, in fact, one day triumph. They are playing by the old rules, rules that the, the cross forever undermined. When Jesus returns, when his kingdom comes fully, those people will discover that by marginalizing the poor and powerless of this world, they have cut themselves off from those who are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Friends, Jesus has triumphed, and the old order of this world will pass away. And the wise among us, therefore, will live not by the old rules, not by the rules that are passing away, but as citizens of Jesus' kingdom. And in Jesus' kingdom, the wise do not show favoritism. They love their neighbor, whomever that might be. All right, the second section I'd like to tackle, somewhat quickly, I know, is the section on faith and deeds. And believe me, I thought long and hard about skipping this, uh, covering something else. Uh, but I also think this is a place where understanding this letter as pastoral wisdom can help us with what is, for some people, a challenging and even controversial passage. Remember, uh, James is not writing a textbook. He's not writing a treatise. He is writing to his flock to people that he cares about, offering wisdom on how to flourish as the people of God. And that requires your faith and actions to work together, James says. So look at chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. Uh, he famously writes this. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. Now, consider his opening question here. If someone claims to have faith, but has no deeds, zero, none, can such a faith save them? Now, I think... There's two basic ways you could think about answering this question, right? First, you could approach it from a purely abstract, hypothetical position, uh, right? You're, you're sort of asking, is this kind of thing possible? But we already know, or I'm making the case, that James is not writing that kind of letter. He is writing to people who he wants to see flourish as followers of Jesus in the real world. Uh, and so he answers it, I think, from a second position, uh, as a parent might answer to a child, for example, or as a good friend might answer to someone they care about deeply. Now the question isn't abstract. Uh, it's about an actual strategy for living as a believer. And if we're talking about someone we care about, if we're talking about someone we love, my guess is that we would say, don't risk it. Right? That's just, we would say that, that's just a bad strategy for living. You, you want to give your faith to Jesus but then never obey him? Don't do it. We would say that's foolish. That kind of faith might save you, but you're going to miss out from all kinds of blessings in the present. I may have told this before, but it's a perfect example of this. Uh, when I was 
uh, in high school, I was part of a Bible study. Uh, and at one point, we were walking through the Gospel of John. So during the week, I'm reading what we're going to discuss at, at the next Bible study. John 15, it's the vine and the branches. And, you know, most of it I'm reading through. Yeah, pretty straightforward, makes sense. Jesus is the vine, we're the branches. If we abide in him and him in us, we'll, we'll bear much fruit. But then I get to the point where it says, but the branches that bear no fruit uh, will be pruned off and thrown into the fire. And I went, well, wait a minute, I thought I was tracking with the metaphor here, but, but what's that supposed to mean? So I showed up at the next Bible study, and I, I was all fiery, and I'm, I'm saying to my mentor leading the study, well, what is this supposed to mean? I mean, are these branches that were in the vine, and now they're being cut off? I mean, what is Jesus trying to suggest by that? And what is he being thrown into the fire? Is that supposed to be hell? What are we supposed to make of that? And my mentor just went, yeah, oh, I don't know. Man, that, that's terrible. That looks crazy, right? That looks... I wouldn't want to be part of that. I would not want to be one of those branches. And I said, yeah, but, but what does it mean? And he goes, I, I don't know. My plan is just to abide in Jesus, bear fruit, and then it's not my problem. <laughs> and I got to tell you, I found that answer deeply unsatisfactory. I said, you're evading my question? And he said, yeah, maybe. But I think it's the right strategy. And the longer I live, the more I like that. I think it captures the spirit of Jesus' teaching exactly. And frankly, I think it captures what James is after as well. James cares about these people. And he doesn't want them risking eternity on the answer to an abstract question. It's not worth it. It's foolish. Why risk it, James says, when you can simply obey, bear fruit, and be certain? Any parent, any friend, any pastor worth their salt, I hope, would say the same thing. Don't risk it. And to return to our theme, they would probably say, look, if Jesus is in fact not just your Savior, but your King, if God has established his throne forever, then surely the wise among us will live not just by faith, but in obedience to him as well. I want to highlight one more thing, kind of by way of wrapping things up this morning. Because for James, this issue isn't just about knowing that your salvation is secure, as important as that is. It's not just about life after death. Wisdom, he says, bears fruit in this life, in the present. And in fact, James has an interesting way of phrasing this. Look down with me, if you would, at chapter 2, verses 20 to 22. He says, you foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was it not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. Now here again, we see that word complete, uh, or whole, or perfect, depends on your translation. This is a major theme of James's letter. And as he says in chapter 1, it is part of the blessing of faith. When I talk about James wanting people to flourish, this is what he means. He's not talking about, you know, the prosperity gospel, health and wealth. He is talking about the blessing of faith. Faith being made complete, being made whole. Uh, our, our persons, fractured by sin, being made whole by the work of God. As we persevere in faith, as we exercise our faith, he says, 
God will gradually make us complete or whole as he continues his work in us. Now, that sounds great, but I want to ask a practical question. What does that really mean, right? What does that mean? Well, I'm not certain, but as I thought about that, this this week, I have an idea. Uh, sorry, you're getting kind of my life history here, but uh, I think it was the summer between 6th and 7th grade. Uh, I went to Kings Island, which is an amusement park. Uh, it, it's a lot like, what's the one we have here? I just blanked. Valley Fair. It's a lot like Valley Fair. Cincinnati, Ohio, it's got roller coasters, got a water park, all you know, the whole nine yards. Uh, and I was invited to go with my best friend and his brother and his brother's friend and, and his dad. All five of us were going to get in the car, drive down to Valley Fair, or to, not to, to Kings Island. Uh, and my friend who invited me, because he was my best friend, he knew that I was afraid of heights, uh, by which he meant that if you get me high enough off the ground, I have a very rational life preservation instinct that kicks in. He didn't, I did. Uh, and, and so he was trying to prepare me. He said, listen, listen, I've already been here, I've ridden roller coasters, and I, I can tell you right now that you're going to get there, you're going to get in line, you're going to look up at that first hill, and you're going to think, no way, I'm out, I'm not riding this. And he goes, but you have to ride it. It's amazing. And I said, yeah, yeah, no, I know, I, I want to ride it, I just, you know, I don't know. And he says, listen, I've thought about it for you, and I've decided it all comes down to one question. Do you trust this roller coaster to bring you back alive? It's the kind of question a teenage boy would ask another teenage boy. And I, and I said, no, okay, yeah, I get that. He goes, yeah, yeah, the only issue you gotta worry about is, do you have faith that this thing will bring you back alive? And he said, you should, because no one's ever died on any of these roller coasters. These cars run around dozens and dozens of times every day, hundreds of days a year, year after year, no one ever dies. So there's no reason not to trust it. There's no reason not to put your faith in this roller coaster. And I said, okay, fine, just leave me alone for a little bit, okay? He said, okay. So we drive down there, we get to the King's Island, we right away, we run to the line of one of the biggest roller coasters. We get in line, I look up at that thing, and immediately I think, I'm not doing this, <laughs> right? And, and I, knew, I knew I couldn't tell him that. I just, I told myself, like, you know what? Uh, I can always just ditch out at the last second. I'll, I'll stay here in line with them. We'll get up there. I mean, there's five of us. It's two per car. I'll just, you know, I'll just, I'll step to the side and not ride it. Uh, and, and so the line goes on, and, and my friend could tell I was getting anxious. He said, I'm making you ride this. I just want you to be clear. I was like, okay, okay. So we get up there. He gets me in the seat. They lock the thing down. We go up that hill. I thought I was going to vomit. And then all of a sudden... We go over the top, we start barreling downhill, wind in your face, you feel weightless, and just in a heartbeat, I went from terror to joy. I just, I loved it. It was amazing, it was fun, it was fast, and it was over far too soon. Now, you could argue that yes, I learned something important about roller coasters and engineers. I learned that they could in fact be trusted to get me back alive. But I would argue that the more important change happened inside me. I did believe those roller coasters were going to bring me back alive before I rode it. I had faith that that would happen. But when I put my faith into action, when I actually got on the car and went up that hill, I had an experience of roller coasters. And that experience, I think James would say, completed my faith. 
And that did several things. First, it made trusting the next roller coaster much easier. Because now I had not just a faith in their trustworthiness, I had an experience of their trustworthiness. And those, I have to tell you, are two very different things. Eventually, as the day went on, I came to ride them more or less without fear. I still don't love that first hill, though. I'll admit that, even today. But second, I experienced, I got to experience the joy of riding a roller coaster. Completing my faith, yes, it helped me face the future, future roller coasters with less fear, but it also gave me in the present the joy of riding one. And that, I think, is the blessing we get when our faith and actions work together. That's the blessing we receive when we live our lives with wisdom. Like Abraham at the altar with Isaac, when our faith and deeds work together, we go from just believing that God is good and faithful to having an experience of God's goodness and faithfulness. And those are two very different things. That will make facing the next challenge of real life a little easier and a little less fearful. And this is no small thing either. In the present, it frees us to enjoy our relationship with God. That, I think, practically, is what Abraham gained with his obedience to God. And James wrote this letter, I think, so that you might have that too. So that you might persevere through trials. So that your faith, working with your actions, might be made complete. And the key to doing that, James says, is wisdom. Living with wisdom helps make our faith complete so that we are able to face trials and the future without fear. Would you bow with me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, it's, of course, impossible for us to express to you our full gratitude to the salvation you have made freely available to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. God, it is our, it is our pleasure to confess this morning uh, that, that salvation is something you did, not something we did. It's a gift that we receive through grace. But Lord, it's almost amazing, considering the greatness of that gift, that, that you want actually more for us. Uh, you want to see us flourish, not in some shallow way as our culture often talks about human flourishing, but truly as the human beings that you created us to be. You want us to have joy in our relationship with you. You want our faith to be made complete as we not only have faith in your goodness and faithfulness, but that we might experience your goodness and faithfulness, that we might taste and see that the Lord is good. God, we thank you so much for that. And my prayer uh, for us, uh, for myself, for our congregation, Lord, is that we would take you up on that, that we would strive to live our lives with wisdom, to persevere through trials so that we might be made, our faith might be made complete, that we might have that experience of the goodness of our God. In your name we pray, amen.